Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. And this is going to be our final deep dive episode of 2019. We've got a lot to cover since our last episode, our deep dive episode at the end of the November sitting. We've got some consequential arguments, some high profile motion practice and our first opinions of the 2019 term. And to help us break down all of this exciting stuff, we are pleased to have back on the podcast, Elaine Goldenberg. Elaine is a partner at Munger, Tolls & Olson here in D.C. She was previously an assistant to the Solicitor General, and she's argued a whopping 12 cases at the Supreme Court. Thanks, Elaine, for joining us again. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me back. Probably the biggest argument of this session was argued on the first day of the December sitting, and that was on Monday, December 2nd, and that was the Second Amendment argument in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association against the city of New York. And this is, as most court watchers know, this is the first gun case that was argued in nearly a decade. You have gun challengers trying to have uh, bring cases to the court for years without much success. They finally get a case in front of the court. Uh, but then New York City repealed its law that was at issue, and now it looks like the case could be moot. We had uh, Justice Ginsburg at the beginning of the argument, uh, mentioning that point to Paul Clement, who is arguing on behalf of the New York challengers. The standard for mootness... Uh, Mr. Mr. Clement, the city has now been blocked by a state law, and the state has not been party to these proceedings. The state says, city, thou shalt not enforce the regulations. So what's left of this case, the Petitioners have gotten all the relief that they sought. They can carry a gun to a second home. They can carry it to a fire, um, to a practice range out of state. And you had justices like Justice uh, Gorsuch on the other side uh, essentially arguing or pointing out that they thought the case was not moot. Why why, why isn't that good enough? Um, If under the prior law the plaintiffs would have sought uh, relief that would allow them to take their firearms locked um, safely uh, to a range and stop along the way for a cup of coffee or a bathroom break, um, and that that is still being denied under the — if that's a proper reading, we'll ask New York about that, I'm sure. But if that's still a proper reading of their existing regulations, why isn't there a live controversy remaining? Elaine, what do you think about this argument? Do you think that the court is uh, going to uh, toss this case out, or do you think that the justices are going to reach some kind of substantive ruling here? Well, the argument did focus very heavily on mootness and didn't touch very much on the merits of the case. I think with respect to how the court is likely to rule on mootness, it's a little bit hard to tell from the argument itself, as you said. Justice Gorsuch uh, seemed to be taking the view at argument that it might not make sense to dismiss the case as moot. Justice Alito also very much seemed to take that view. Justices Kavanaugh and um, Thomas didn't ask any questions, and liberal justices seemed inclined to toss the case out as moot. So it may turn on, as as things often do, (laughs) on what the chief justice thinks. Um, He asked a few questions of the lawyer representing the city of New York that suggested that maybe he would be open to ruling that this case was moot. He asked the lawyer, for instance, whether if this case were dismissed as moot, 
the plaintiffs could bring a new claim for relief based on the new law that has been put in place by both the state and the city. And he also asked the New York lawyer whether gun owners would face consequences for past violations of the old law. And uh, he got assurances from the New York lawyer on both of those things. Right. Right. And in fact, the justices pressed the New York lawyer quite hard on the question of whether gun owners would face any consequences and asked him a whole series of questions, including would his office communicate with the office that would be responsible for making those uh, those choices. And he was quite staunch uh, in saying that there would no there would be no such consequences. So can I there was most most of the arguments focused on this mootness issue. Did we hear anything about uh, the Second Amendment and how the justices are are thinking about uh, that issue? There wasn't a lot, but there were some questions about the merits of the case, I think mainly directed to the city of New York and mainly directed to the lawyer by Justice Alito. And I think Part of what is going on in this case and what will no doubt go on in future cases if this case gets tossed out as moot is that there is a debate happening over what the standard should be for assessing whether there's been a violation of the Second Amendment. And so I think a lot of the questions that came up in this argument were meant to probe what the correct standard should be. Should the standard be totally focused on history and tradition uh, and what um, the founders would have thought about these gun restrictions vis-a-vis the Second Amendment? Or should it be more of a traditional constitutional test like intermediate scrutiny, which is what uh, a lot of lower courts have applied in this context? So I think it was hard to tell from the questions uh, exactly how the court would come out on those things. But that, I think, is the the, the bone of contention. Um, and that came through at the argument. And so if the case does wind up getting tossed, um, there are some cases waiting in the pipeline. Uh, Kimberly, you recently uh, looked at some of these cases. If the this New York case winds up getting dismissed as moot, um, are there any in particular that you think we're going to see uh, come up here that the court could, the, the part of the court anyway that's looking to make a big Second Amendment ruling could grab onto one of these cases and use one of them? Yeah, well, there are a lot of um, cases that touch on the Second Amendment kind of hanging out um, on the court's docket waiting uh, for briefing and for action by the justices. I think the major issue um, that's out there are are these concealed carry laws in the various states. They kind of uh, vary state to state um, how rigorous um, you have to, the requirements are to get one. there's there's plenty of those for the justices to pick from if they do want to kind of go after the scrutiny issue that Elaine was talking about. Right. And I think there's at least one case that uh, has the same counsel as petitioners in the case that uh, the court just heard argument in that's been hanging out on the court's docket since May or something like that, presumably being held for the New York state rifle case. And that that would be at least one possible option. But I know there are others as well. So another case that uh, the justices heard during the December sitting um, deals with Obamacare. Elaine, can you tell us a little bit about this case? There's a there's a lot at stake here. There is. I think this is a really fascinating case, and it's kind of flown under the radar, I think, a little bit uh, in the press and in these, the world of Supreme Court watchers. There are literally billions and billions and billions of dollars at stake here, and also larger principles about how courts should interpret uh, congressional enactments in which the government promises to pay money. So... Um, When Congress enacted the ACA, uh, otherwise known as Obamacare, it gave insurance companies incentives to participate in health benefit exchanges. And there was a statutory provision set up 
to protect insurers against some uncertainty. So insurers that collected premiums that exceeded their costs were going to have to make payments to the government. And the statute says shall pay to describe that obligation. And insurers whose costs exceeded the premiums they collected were supposed to get payment from the government. And that obligation was expressed also using the language shall pay. The secretary of the relevant agency shall pay. Um, and the federal circuit ultimately ruled uh, against the insurers when they brought a claim saying, hey, you never paid us. <laughs> you said shall pay, but you didn't pay. And now you owe us $12 billion. And the federal circuit said, well, there were these later appropriations riders. And that was really like an implied repeal of the payment obligation. Um, and the court rejected an argument that later became very central in the Supreme Court, which is, that when a statute says shall pay, you have to read those words against the background of the Anti-Deficiency Act, which is a statute that says government officials shouldn't make payments that exceed appropriations. So ultimately, the court took the case, and it seemed pretty clear at the time, I think, that the court took the case to reverse the federal circuit and say that when the government says shall pay, it's actually got to pay. <laughs> right. Uh, and I think the oral argument bore that out. Um, yeah. Uh, and it seems like that is the likely result, although it's not possible to predict for sure. Right. It's always hazardous to guess, but they really grilled the government's uh, lawyer who was doing just the best he could. I mean, they had a, you know, good advocate up there. Um, but yes, an excellent advocate. <laughs> um, kind of a losing argument, it seemed like. I mean, it just seemed like, as is often the way, I think, a basic sense of fairness was driving the court's questions. When mm -hmm. I was in the SG's office, my children were maybe like eight and 10, you know, that range. And I always used to just try to explain cases to them and ask them what they thought. And they always got it right. <laughs> because despite all of the technicalities and the legalities and the, you know, curl cues, it is often about fairness and equity. And so a lot of the questions here were along those lines. We learned on the first day of contract law that when someone promises you something, they have to follow through as long as you hold up your end of the bargain. And uh, you know this was a bait and switch because the insurers were enticed into this program by the promise of payment, but then they never got paid. Uh, and so it really was a hard row to hoe for the government who really got peppered with a lot of questions along those lines, whereas Petitioner's Council had fairly smooth sailing and a lot of uh, uninterrupted periods of explaining his position, which is always a good sign. Right. Well, um, I got a little PTSD from you taking me all the way back to my first day of contracts. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So there were a bunch of other uh, good arguments and interesting arguments this term, but unfortunately we can't get into all of them. I think we'll maybe move on to the first opinions uh, of this term. There was some uh, speculation that Possibly the first opinion was maybe going to be in the more closely watched uh, case on the Puerto Rico uh, Oversight and Management Board. Uh, however, we got a different case, uh, equally exciting, but in a different way, uh, perhaps. <laughs> and uh, that was a, the debt collection case, Rutkiski against Clem. And Elaine, you had filed an amicus brief in that case. Do you want to maybe tell us a little bit about that uh, decision and, and your interest that you represented in that case as well? Absolutely. The Fair Debt Collection Practices Act is always interesting. Of course, of course. <laughs> I resent any implication to the contrary. Um, so the question in this case was about the one-year statute of limitations in the FDCPA, which I will familiarly call it. Um, and by its text, that statute of limitations runs from the date of occurrence of the alleged violation of the statute. And the question was, is that statute of limitations, nevertheless, subject to a discovery rule. That is, are there circumstances in which 
the one year should run from the date that the plaintiff discovers the existence of the violation rather than from the date that the violation actually happened. And here the plaintiff said he didn't know about the violation until long afterwards. So the court issued what I think looks like a very simple and straightforward decision. It's an 8-1 decision written by Justice Thomas. And the court said, look, the text of the statute says that the time starts running when the violation happens. It doesn't say anything about a general discovery rule. You can't just read that into the statute when Congress didn't choose to say it as a matter of statutory interpretation. And that's particularly true because Congress knows how to write a discovery rule in the statute of limitations and has done so on many occasions. So that's a sort of straightforward, plain text reading. Um, the court did leave open the question of how equitable doctrines apply in this circumstance. So is there an equitable discovery rule that applies only in cases of fraud? How does equitable tolling work here exactly? And the court left that open for future cases. But one thing that I think maybe um, has not been widely recognized, at least yet, about this decision is that I think it actually does have some pretty broad implications in that some courts, like the Ninth Circuit, for instance, have had a rule that they have indiscriminately read a discovery principle into any and all statutes of limitations, federal statute of limitations. They've said that's just a background principle that Congress legislates against. And the Supreme Court had previously expressed some uncertainty on that point, but not resolved it. But here, I think the court really did resolve it uh, in a way that reaches beyond the FTCPA itself. Um, and it said, you know, you can't supplement a statute of limitations. It said that the general discovery rule was bad wine of recent vintage, quoting from an opinion of Justice Scalia's in a prior case. Um, and so all that, I think, means that if Congress wants to create that kind of general discovery rule, it's going to need to do so expressly in the future. And this case will have implications for how statutes limitations are read, not only for the FDCPA and the other statutes that have similarly worded statutes limitations, but for lots of other statutes. Um, I think as well. And that was an argument um, that we were advancing in our brief that we wrote for the Chamber of Commerce and the Mortgage Bankers Association is that the court really should clear up this confusion around the general discovery rule for, for federal statutes limitations generally. And I really think the court did do that. So I think in that in that sense, the decision is not as narrow and limited as most uh, court watchers have interpreted it to be. And so are there any areas in particular that you think this type of uh, decision could have an application to? You mentioned you know, statutes of limitations in general, but are there any sort of industries or areas of the law that you think might uh, particularly be affected by this? So I do think that the financial uh, area is one, not only in the debt collection area, but also there are a number of other statutes that similarly have that one-year statute of limitations running from the date of the violation. And that's a pretty quick statute of limitations. And so it really matters whether it gets extended or not. Uh, and so the Truth in Lending Act is one. The Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act is another. There are this whole long list, actually, of sort of finance or financial-oriented statutes where I think this is going to have the most immediate and um, and substantive effect, as I say again, because those statute, statutes of limitations are short ones and because those statutes are worded very similarly to the FDCPA. Now, uh, you mentioned that this was an 8-1 case and Justice Ginsburg was in dissent. Um, interestingly, Justice Ginsburg usually is the justice who comes out with the first opinion. Um, this year, it was Justice Thomas. Uh, anything to read into that? You know, we have to read tea leaves about everything about the Supreme Court. So <laughs> tell us what we should I be thinking. I don't think so. I don't think I wouldn't read much into it besides this opinion was really short. 
Um, and so um, it probably didn't take that long. And uh, therefore, it was able to get out faster than the others. And even though there was a dissent, uh, which sometimes slows the issuance of opinions down, the dissent was by Justice Ginsburg. And Justice Ginsburg, as you've just indicated, is very quick in writing her opinion. So um, although normally someone might have written this somewhat brief opinion and waited a long time for the dissent, uh, here Justice Thomas didn't have to wait because Justice Ginsburg is so speedy. So she's being speedy as usual. She's just being speedy on the on the dissenting side of things. Interesting. And so, Elaine, before we uh, let you go here, there is one more uh, case that you were involved with that we wanted to discuss, and that was very uh, closely watched cert petition in the Adnan Syed case in the popular uh, serial podcast that perhaps uh, people have listened to. And uh, he was raising an ineffective assistance of counsel claim, uh, but that cert petition was denied, and you were an amicus in that case as well. Do you want to talk just briefly about the legal issue that that case presented and maybe what's next for Syed after the cert petition denial? Sure. It was disappointing that that cert petition got denied. I do think that there was a real split in authority there. Um, so the legal issue was about ineffective assistance of counsel. And Syed um, had someone come forward before his trial to say that she had seen and talked to him during the time period when the prosecution said that the victim had been murdered. And he asked his lawyer at the time to get in touch with that person and to follow up on her offer to come forward and give evidence, and his lawyer, uh, he says, failed to do that. And so the jury didn't hear that evidence um, of an alibi witness. And the question that was before the court was about the so-called prejudice prong of the ineffective assistance test. So the question of whether there's a reasonable probability that but for counsel making that error, the result of the proceeding would have been different. And when courts have addressed that question, first of all, every time that there's an alibi witness who's been at issue, courts have said, yes, it's prejudicial to not have an alibi witness presented at your trial, just sort of, you know, uh, on its face. Um, but beyond that, what courts have done is they've looked at the case that the prosecution actually presented at trial, and then they've compared that with the case that the defendant would have presented if his attorney had been more effective to try to decide whether there's prejudice. Here, the state court did something a little different, which is to say, yeah, you know, it's true this alibi witness would have meant that the defendant couldn't have committed the murder during the time that the prosecution told the jury that the murder was committed, but the jury could have come up with a different time. And there was some other evidence about later times. And so that would have been fine. And that really, I think, does conflict with the approach that lots of other courts have taken to this issue and represents a sort of new and onerous approach for defendants to the prejudice analysis, particularly when you're talking about an alibi witness. So it was disappointing um, that the court decided not to take it. Um, it's possible that the court viewed it as just sort of a fact-bound issue, um, but as for the reasons I've given, I don't think that was true. Um, in terms of what's next, I think that one thing that's possibly next is seeking a pardon from the Maryland governor. And I assume that uh, counsel for the defendant is taking steps along those lines. Obviously, there's you know not a guarantee that you're going to get a pardon. It's a matter of discretion, to some degree at least, by the, um, by the official who's charged with making that decision. Okay, so we've gotten through some of the arguments and the one blockbuster opinion so far. Uh, let's well, there was another opinion, but we're... Exactly. There were two. Well, I guess now that we mentioned it, I'll just note maybe really quickly what it is, and that was in... 
Peter against Nanquest, and this was a patent case, a unanimous opinion by Justice uh, Sotomayor, uh, in Section 145 of the Patent Act, which we all know. Um, it gives applicants dissatisfied with the decision of the Patent Trial and Appeal Board the opportunity to file a civil action in the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia. Uh, the law says that all the expenses of the proceedings shall be paid by the applicant. Uh, the issue there was whether such expenses include salaries of attorney and paralegal employees of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and the answer is they don't. And I think that's uh, all we'll say about that one, but now you guys are all up to speed on the opinions. So now we can get into some of the... Uh, Maybe some of the most interesting stuff that's actually been happening hasn't been in the arguments or the opinions, but in some of the uh, high-profile stay and in, in motion practice here, including um, maybe what will go on to be some of the most famous litigation of this era having to do with subpoenas into the president for his financial information. So there's a few cases swirling around. Kimberly, can you maybe give us a bit of an overview as to what these cases are and maybe whether the court's going to take them? Sure. So there are actually three cases. Um, two of them um, involve uh, subpoenas from the U.S. House of Representatives, and they are requesting um, financial documents. The third case is uh, out of New York and has to do with a grand jury proceeding out there that is also seeking the same um, information from one of the same accounting firms. Um, all of those are currently pending at the court. The court has stayed uh, those subpoenas or there has been some kind of deal worked out by the parties where they're not going to enforce them until the Supreme Court decides uh, whether to take them up. And then if it does take them up, decides what to do about it. Um, the issue there is really going to be about uh, whether or not the House and states can investigate the president while he is in office. And um, I would expect to hear something, you know, in the coming weeks about it. Some more right. news. And this is, you know, there's been different motions filed seemingly, you know, every other uh, day or so. So we don't want to uh, get into anything here that could change right after you, you listen to it. But, you know, that gives everyone a bit of a, an overview. So thanks for that. And then an, another um, interesting matter that's playing out on the motions practice has to deal with the federal death penalty. Jordan, you've been watching this for us. Right. So some of us may remember over the summer, Attorney General Barr announced that the federal government was ordered to reserve uh, that the federal government was ordered to resume executions after a decade plus hiatus, and there were some federal executions scheduled for December and January. Uh, but there was a bit of a hitch thrown into the Trump administration's plan to carry out these executions when a federal trial judge in D.C. effectively halted them based on this. A pretty technical law, uh, which says that federal executions uh, essentially need to be done in the manner of the state in which the uh, the state in which the defendant was uh, convicted, and it's it's sort of an, an odd law. But uh, anyway, based on that, the uh, federal district court judge said that the defendant's challenges under that law need to be able to go forward and so effectively halted the executions for now. The Department of Justice then took that up to the D.C. Circuit, which upheld the district court's halting of the executions for now. And then the case wound up coming up to the Supreme Court. Uh, and it was unclear what the justices were going to do there. Uh, but they did deal somewhat of a rare loss to the Trump administration on this 
uh, and an expedited type of uh, motion of the sort that we've been uh, seeing a lot from the Department of Justice in in recent years. Uh, but really, all that that that's doing is saying that the litigation can still go forward and playing out with the prisoner's challenge under this law, not that they're not going to be uh, executed eventually. And the Supreme Court's order against the administration, there was a statement from Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, which basically suggested that they're probably going to rule for the government when the case comes back. Um, I wasn't sure exactly why Justice Thomas didn't join that, because he's, he's sort of usually in that uh, group as well. And that all sort of raises the question, again, of what's the Chief Justice going to do when this case um, ultimately comes back, which it's almost definitely going to do on the merits. And that one's going to be argued in the D.C. Circuit in January. So we'll be uh, tracking that one for when it inevitably comes back up to the court. Well, that's going to do it. That was our final deep dive episode of 2019. But we've got one more special episode coming your way. And to tease it a little bit, we're going to have Elaine share her funniest moment at the U.S. Supreme Court. Elaine, take it away. Okay, sounds good. So the funniest thing I've ever seen or heard at the Supreme Court is something that I actually witnessed rather than heard because it happened silently. And that is not on one occasion, but actually on two separate occasions, uh, justices who shall remain nameless and advocates who shall remain nameless <laughs> had a uh, silent interaction between the bench and counsel table where the justices, I take it from these, these occurrences, have the briefs or some papers that are sitting in front of them bound together with rubber bands. And as you know, if you've been at the court, counsel table is really close to the bench. You're basically sitting right under the justices. The first time I ever sat at counsel table, I was blown away by how you're just kind of inches away from them. It feels like you're right there. Anyway, on two occasions, a justice has removed the rubber band uh, in a um, uh, non-careful manner from the uh, pile of briefs and has struck an advocate in the head with rubber band. Uh, in neither case was the advocate arguing at the time. They were both sitting at council table when it happened, but both uh, startled <laughs> and confused about where the mysterious rubber band appeared from uh, to to hit them in the head while they were sitting at council table. So that was pretty funny. Um, it wasn't anything anyone said, but uh, in both instances, I think uh, everyone had a good laugh about it afterwards. Well, now you've piqued our interest with uh, who these people are. So it merits a further investigation. We're going to have to do a multi-part uh podcast investigation on this now to rival the, uh, the serial <laughs> that case. That sounds good. A, a high-powered journalistic inquiry is called for. I think that's right. Well, great. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate you um, coming on to Cases and Controversies again. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for talking to me. Well, now I'm interested. I want to know which justices and lawyers were involved in this uh, rubber band gate. We're going to have to investigate this some more. Until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Adam Allington. I'm the host of a new show from Bloomberg Environment called The Business of Bees. Here's what you need to know about it. We travel around the country talking to people at every corner of the honeybee ecosystem. This is the largest managed pollination event on Earth. In fact, commercial beekeeping is more important to farming than ever before. But bees are also under threat from pesticides and invasive pests and mysterious diseases. It's sort of like Christmas when you go to the hive in December and you open the lid. You just hope somebody's home. If you're interested in bees too, I think you might like the show. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.